our greatest subsidy in this country for housing goes to upper income and wealthy people, and it's in the form of tax deductions for the mortgage interest and, and property tax. And people in the affordable housing field for at least the last 30 or 40 years have been advocating for restructuring that so that it's a much lower income threshold and that we can divert some of that, what's essentially lost tax revenue, towards affordable housing for low-income people rather than upper income. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we interview thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable and more equitable communities. In episode number two of Infinite Earth Radio, we spoke with Manuel Pastor about equitable development and economic growth. Today, Vernice and I have as our guest, Dr. Chris Benner, who frequently collaborates with Manuel. Their most recent book is called Equity, Growth, and Opportunity, What the Nation Can Learn from America's Metro Areas. Later in the show, Chris will explain to you how you can get a free copy of the book. After listening to today's show, you will definitely want to go back and listen to episode number two with Dr. Pastor, which was really a great show. Manuel is a super smart guy, and we discussed not only why equity is a superior growth model, but we talked about the political, economic, demographic, and social forces that are shaping our current political discourse and the future of the United States. Today, in addition to discussing their new book, Chris is going to talk about a recent study he completed on affordable housing and job growth in the San Francisco Bay Area. So, Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. Chris, uh, can you share briefly with our audience a little bit about your background and what, what draws you to issues of economic and social equity and inclusion? Just, I'm a professor at the University of California, Santa Cruz. I do work on the relationship between technological change and economic restructuring and its implications for disadvantaged populations. And, you know, I got into this work, long background, grew up in California, sort of a broad interest in social justice issues, both domestically and internationally. And for me, that interest is really rooted in just, I care about the future. And if you care about the future, you have to care about those populations that have been historically marginalized because they are the future. (laughs) And that's the future in the U.S. We're looking at demographic change, you know, majority minority country by 2042. California has been majority minority for at least 15 years. And it's true globally. Uh, I do a lot of work in Africa and uh, rapidly growing population in Africa, but also India, China. And the success of those regions and the ability to grow a broad middle class in those parts of the world is really about our own economic future and own livelihoods. That's true on the environmental issues as well as the social equity issues. So I I just see this as common sense to be concerned about these issues. And honestly, I'm a little confused that 
people who aren't prioritizing issues of social equity, because I think it's fundamental for the prosperity of everyone. Yeah, and I think that that issue is, I don't think people quite grasp that issue. We had a couple of weeks ago, we interviewed your friend Manuel Pastor, your colleague, and he has been day of the new equity atlas down at USC that they've done with the um, folks at PolicyLink. And one of the, the really striking things that I, I saw out of that, playing around with that data source, was that the white population of the United States by 2040 is going to decline by about 3 million people, as where the population of communities of color, Latinos, Blacks, Asian population in the United States is going to grow by 75 million during that same time period. So it's just, it is just so striking that if those populations are not competing economically, not able to participate economically, it's really hard to see how our country prospers moving forward. Well, exactly. And I, you know, I think if you want to make a prediction about which places in our country are going to be doing better 10, 15 years from now, look at the high school graduation rates of our Latino youth or the extent to which our Latino youth and Asian youth and others in these places have access to early childhood education. Again, that's that commitment to education for disadvantaged populations is fundamental for our economic future because that is in many ways the current workforce as well as the future workforce. So, Chris, you recently completed a study looking at job growth, housing affordability, and commute times in the San Francisco Bay Area. Let's start first with job growth. What can you tell us about low-wage versus high-wage job growth in the Bay Area? Where are they occurring, and is there a relationship between the two? Yeah, I'll give you a little background on this report first because I think it's important. It was stimulated by what people were seeing and experiencing in San Francisco, where there's been rapid growth in high-tech jobs, and some of it's the very high-profile high-tech jobs, Uber and Lyft and you know, other those kinds of platform companies that seem to be displacing large numbers of longtime residents of San Francisco. And San Francisco itself as a city, you know, is very excited about the rapid growth of new jobs and new industries and, you know, that growth that's going there. But of course, there's a big concern both within San Francisco about what's that doing to housing affordability. And then there was concerns in jurisdictions around San Francisco. People commute long distances in the Bay Area as in many parts of this country. And no one really had a handle on, well, how does that growth in San Francisco impact other places? So the real question we were trying to answer with this report was simply, how does growth in high-wage jobs in one jurisdiction in the Bay Area, affect both low-wage job growth and affordable housing demand in other jurisdictions. Because we know with the growth in high-wage jobs, there's also going to be growth in other jobs that pay low wages, in the restaurant industry, and the accommodation industry, and low-wage services. So we were asked by the regional planning body to answer that question. And and I say we because it's not the royal we, but I had a colleague, Alex Carner, who's now a professor at Georgia State, who helped to answer that. So here's the bottom line, is that the ratio of, say, the growth in high-wage jobs to low-wage jobs differs depending on what jurisdiction you're in. In San Francisco, get about one and a half times as many high-wage jobs as low-wage jobs. This is looking by sort of key industry sectors. But in some places like Palo Alto, it's about two and a half to one. In Milpitas, it's like five to one. But uh, other places, Oakland, so the core of Oakland, are ending up getting more low-wage jobs growing 
compared to the number of high-wage jobs that are growing. So there's a real variation across the region, which makes it a little hard to deal with this challenge. Chris, what's the next study and how can people get access to it? You know, you ask that question and it's some like long, boring <laughs> title like impact of high-wage jobs on low-wage jobs. But the reason partially why this isn't a very catchy title is it was a commissioned report for the Regional Metropolitan Transportation Commission. Mm-hmm. People can get the report from me if they're interested. My email address is cbenner, that's C-B-E-N-N-E-R, at U-C-S-C, that stands for University of California, Santa Cruz, dot E-D-U. And I'm happy to share with anyone who's interested, but it's actually not up on a public website at the moment. And Chris, what do you think the average person could take from that in terms of their own thinking and maybe decision-making about their household in the Bay Area? Because I understand that people are being pushed from San Francisco because of lack of affordability all the way to Richmond, and people who were living in Richmond and can no longer afford to live in Richmond are moving to Martinez and commuting back to San Francisco. Is that really happening? It is really happening. And yeah, you're jumping ahead to the kind of biggest punchline that came out of this report in that we tried to look at new workers. I mean, especially the difference between low-wage workers and higher-wage workers. So it's always hard to talk about statistics on a you know podcast, but so if we take San Francisco, and these are new workers who are in newly grown jobs in San Francisco, and how far are they traveling to those jobs? If we take the high-wage workers, sort of people in new high-wage jobs, it's about eight miles of additional travel that they're creating. So, I mean, that's something, but that's, you know, that's basically Oakland to San Francisco. For low-wage workers, that number is over 30 miles. It's about 34 miles. So those are the people who are traveling from far out distances. For people who know the geography of the Bay Area, it's Pittsburgh and Antioch, these long distances out. And 34 miles in Bay Area traffic is like an hour, an hour and a half each way. So this is a concern, obviously, for people who have low income and those of us concerned about affordable housing, it's also of concern for those of us who care about the environment because that's putting more greenhouse gases into our atmosphere. It's creating worse air pollution, which has health impacts. And I guess that's the other key point about this report is that most people work in silos. So you have people working on housing, working on economic development, some working on transportation, others working on public health. But in fact, they're all interconnected. And that's what we need to be doing is seeing the interconnections between where jobs are located and where the housing need is, what the implications of that are for our transportation systems, how that affects our environmental health, affects our, our public health as well, because they're all connected. Yeah, so on the housing on the housing issue, you know, one of the things I, I pulled out of the report, because I actually read the report, Chris, is that essentially there were a significant number of low-wage jobs created in the city of San Francisco but essentially no new affordable housing units created. Can you talk a little bit about that data? What we tried to look at was the total growth in housing units and then what that meant for the total growth in affordable housing units. And this is important from a policy perspective because some people are saying, well, we just need to grow our way out of the problem. If we just produce as many housing units as we can with kind of not regard to the affordability of those units, it'll filter down through the housing market, you know, laws of supply and demand, ultimately housing prices will reduce. 
our data shows very clearly, particularly in San Francisco, that time period we were looking at, there were about 12,000 new total housing units that were built. There were almost zero increase in affordable housing units during that same time. So you're building 12,000 new units, but they're only affordable to the highest income earners in the region. So it's just very clear evidence that, you know, growing the total number of units does not filter down to the more affordable levels of the, of the housing market. And I think if I remember correctly, during that same time period, there was something like 6,500 new um, low-wage jobs created in San Francisco. Am I imagining that? You're not imagining it. I'm trying to see if I have the numbers right uh, at my fingertips, but it's something like that, yeah. So essentially, 6,500 new low-wage jobs and zero new affordable housing units. Actually, it's even a higher number that we had 15,000 new low-wage jobs just in sort of a narrow categorization of industry categories like restaurants and other types of services. So you've got tremendous growth in those kind of jobs and just no new housing that's available for that. What are the policy implications? What can we do to fix this problem? Well, it's very interesting you ask that because there was a referendum on the ballot in San Francisco in November that was about a moratorium on market rate housing in the Mission District. You know, I was in support of that moratorium because partially what happens is if you're building market rate housing, you're using up the land that's in the area, you know, that becomes a permanent part of our urban space, makes it much hard to find space for affordable housing units. So, you know, even though some would say, well, we just got to build, build, build to get away from the problem, you know, I think our data points to we should really be targeting affordable housing units and making them, you know, permanently affordable to people who don't have those high incomes. And then the critical part of that is that those housing units need to be in places where those job opportunities are so people have access to them and don't have to travel the 30 miles that I talked about earlier to getting access to that. So, you know, how do we get more affordable housing units? I guess there's a whole kind of range of policies that, you know, we know what the solutions are. It's just a question of the political will to make them happen. You know, one of the largest federal programs we have specifically for affordable housing units has to do with a low-income tax credit that developers of affordable housing can apply for. That program could expand it dramatically and make more units available. There's inclusionary zoning policies, so that requires that if any new kind of market rate developments go in, a certain number of them can be made or have to be made affordable to low-income populations and make them permanently affordable. You know, I'm an advocate of rent control for people that are in their current units, and San Francisco does have a, a fairly good rent control in place. But one of the things that's emerged in sort of this recent period is all sorts of ways that uh, landlords are finding ways of evicting long-term residents, which is legal if you are converting it to your own residential space or for a, a family member. But people are finding ways of doing that and then open it up to the market again. Or in some ways, actually converting it to Airbnb places. That's another dynamic that's going on very heavily in, in San Francisco now where you know landowners are taking their apartment out of the rental market and, you know, kicking people out, but then making it only available through Airbnb, which in fact they can get more rent over a, you know, a year than they can from regular monthly rent. So we need greater enforcement of rent control. 
you know, there's other sort of bigger ambitious programs. We have a, you know, our greatest subsidy in this country for housing goes to upper income and wealthy people. And it's in the form of tax deductions for the mortgage interest and property tax. And, you know, people in the affordable housing field for at least the last 30 or 40 years have been advocating for, you know, restructuring that so that it's a much lower income threshold and that we can divert some of that what's essentially lost tax revenue towards affordable housing for low-income people rather than upper-income. Do you see any indication that uh, in San Francisco there there's a movement to create inclusionary zoning or some kind of development incentives to create more affordable housing? Well, I guess I'm not close enough to the politics in San Francisco to be able to answer that effectively. I do know that there are lots of advocates uh, around the Bay Area that are pushing for that and that the regional transportation body and the regional planning body is interested in exploring that. I think part of our challenge is the financing structure of local government. Because in California, and I don't, actually don't know if this is true in many parts of the country, but I imagine it is, housing is a net drain on city resources. The cost of services to new residents in the forms of you know, the water and sewer, electricity and garbage and fire and police and all the things go on with that. The cost is higher than the local revenue that comes from property taxes or residential sources. And that's in part because California cities are heavily dependent on sales tax for many of their local expenditures. So, you know, most people want retail establishments, most local jurisdictions. So, you know, the jurisdictions are acting rationally by not trying to build more housing, but in the process, they're exacerbating the housing crisis. And, of course, that points to the need to reform our fiscal structure of local government. Yeah, by some level, don't you? I mean, you need residents to support the retail and to generate the sales tax, right? So, And related to that, Chris, I want to ask you what this has done to change this phenomena and these different forces have done to change the fundamental character of what is San Francisco. The Mission District is disappearing. Bayview Hunters Point is about to disappear. The Fillmore long ago disappeared. Chinatown remains the only active ethnic enclave in San Francisco. And probably if it wasn't such a tourist attraction, it might be under threat too. But it seems that San Francisco is transforming fundamentally as this ethnic vibrant community of all different kinds of income levels, all different kinds of ethnic backgrounds. And now it's a city that not a lot of people can afford to live in or visit for that matter. Is that changing how people think of themselves as San Franciscans? Yeah, you know, Bernice, I couldn't have said it any better than you just said it. And it points to one of the other sort of intersections of these issues, which is, you know, generally, we'd love to have the problem of too much I wage job growth. I mean, this is a good problem to have. I'd rather be dealing with this in San Francisco than some of the challenges of Detroit or Cleveland or other places that are trying to figure out, well, how do they, you know, get their economies to grow again? But the people who are employed in those high-tech industries are predominantly uh, at very high levels and predominantly white. And so they're not representative of the population of the city historically or of the population of the country. And that points to some of our challenges around trying to get greater STEM education, science, technology, engineering, and math to 
communities of color and, and changing the culture of sort of the dominated industry in the high tech industry. Because if you could have the longtime residents of San Francisco that you described so well in terms of their diversity and interest getting access to these high wage jobs, then you wouldn't have the kind of displacement of these longstanding communities. Michael, you said, you know, of course, places need residents to have the basis for the sales tax to buy the goods. And that is true within a regional context. We have this phenomenon in the Bay Area, the city of Emeryville, a tiny little kind of jurisdiction in between Berkeley and Oakland and just across the Bay from San Francisco that has something like four or 5,000 residents. But it has, you know, a number of massive malls and movie theaters and all the retail establishments per capita sales tax revenue is many, many multiple times higher than places like San Jose is a place that's actually very housing rich and relatively just poor. And if you look at some of the statistics and you know the city there argues that they should be investing more in housing because they're already sort of a bedroom community for Silicon Valley cities. And so you get residents of San Jose who are shipping in the restaurants, the malls, et cetera, in Palo Alto. So again, when you look at sort of the narrow jurisdiction perspective, what may be rational for one place doesn't work for the region as a whole. And that's why sort of regional integration and regional planning. And didn't George Lucas move his company to Emeryville? Pixar is located there. Right. Yeah, so you get this, you know, you see you got this perverse kind of reverse subsidy going on, right? To some degree, you got these poor communities where the people who live there have, the local government doesn't have enough money to pay for appropriate services, and the people who live there are going to shop somewhere else that's benefiting from, you know, the tax dollars that are spent there. Exactly. Just as, you know, part of my personal background, too, I was first really made aware of that dynamic as a contrast to apartheid South Africa. South Africa had legally separate jurisdictions, some for black, some for white, that had exactly that structure you're describing of the tax base and the wealth all in the white jurisdictions and black townships having no jobs, but the vast majority of the workforce working and shopping in the white townships. Now, we're not as extreme as apartheid South Africa, but the dynamics are very similar where you have these communities of color, you know, East Palo Alto and Oakland and part of West San Jose, that are really the workforce for the region in the low-wage jobs, but they don't have the services, they don't have the tax base to provide the good schools and the other resources that people need to be able to do well in their lives. And I think the other thing to, to touch upon is the, you know, Barbara Ehrenreich wrote a couple of books that really talk about how it's expensive. It costs a lot of money to be poor, right? So you have these folks, and you've talked about the the vehicle miles traveled and the the environmental implications, but there's also the time that these people have to spend doing commutes and how big a chunk out of their lives, as well as the cost of commuting these distances. And I think that this problem, while we're sitting here talking about San Francisco, you can plug in a lot of major metropolitan areas in this country, and it's the same story. Vernice had the conversation about how there is not one single unit of affordable housing left in Washington, D.C. So, I'm not sure if there's a question here, but there's also this huge quality of life and economic implications for the poor people who are the lower income people who have to make these commutes. And it seems like our public policy really needs to start thinking about how to, how to think about those problems better rather than 
providing social services for people who can't afford to live somewhere, figuring out a better way to structure our economy and our communities so that they don't have these external costs, if you will. Yeah, and I agree with you. The, the phrase that I always keep in mind that you described is, you know, the poor pay more everywhere in the world. Uh, it works that way. And, you know, just another example that it works in this transportation thing is that either people are on public transit and spending the tremendous amount of time out of their lives that you described, or they're driving cars, but they're not driving the hybrid or, you know, plug-in hybrid electrical vehicles. Exactly. You know, they're driving the older cars, the old jalopies, whatever they've got. So they're paying more for gas. They're paying more for maintenance, polluting the air worse. So they're, yeah, they're getting hit on all sides. So, Chris, let's turn to your book, Equity, Growth, and Community, What the Nation Can Learn from America's Metro Areas, which you co-authored with your colleague and longtime associate, Manuel Pastor. And in the book, you talk about the three big crises in the U.S., the jobs crises, the inequality crisis, and the political crises, how while often viewed as separate crises, they're in fact inextricably intertwined. Can you talk about how these crises play out in the context of housing affordability and just the overall quality of life in the Bay Area? Yeah, and thanks for mentioning that book. By the way, people can get a free copy of the book downloader. You can just go to the website, which is growingtogethermetro.org. And, you know, the key finding we in that book, it was comparing 200 metropolitan regions across the country and looking at those places that were better at both growing faster economically and improving indicators of social equity better. And the places that were successful we're able to do precisely what I described earlier about the need to break down these barriers between the silos of our sort of policy worlds and the geographic isolation of our different communities and find combinations of different organizations and institutions. And a lot of it's just about social norms and relationships that bring together diverse constituencies together to really understand and examine what's going on in the region and that that knowledge base becomes really critical in many ways just for breaking through the ideological divides that have paralyzed us on a national scale and really made us largely ineffective as a nation in dealing with some of the major global crises that we've had to deal with over the last 20, 30 years of increasing globalization and technological change and, you know, the environmental challenges that are part of that, that despite some of the recent successes, the you know, global climate agreement in Paris, you know, by and large, we have not addressed these challenges to the scale that they need be in our country. But at some metropolitan scales where they've been bridging these divides and getting beyond the ideology to really deal with the facts on the ground and having common knowledge, they find ways to come together to address it in an appropriate way. The Bay Area is an interesting case in that sense in that, you know, the 1980s in Silicon Valley, the core, you know, the high-tech industry here, there was a real strong sense of a region and a community in Silicon Valley and some of the largest business leaders here, you know, had an investment in local communities and through groups like Joint Venture Silicon Valley and others were able to somewhat bridge the divides between the haves and the have-nots. And we can see that in the data, that levels of social equity um, were better in the 80s and, and early 90s. 
But as the high-tech industry got increasingly global, you know, many of the companies that may be headquartered in the Bay Area will have a minority of their workforce here and have, you know, a larger globally. They're dealing with new kinds of global competition. And just the divides between, you know, the high-tech haves and the rest of the region have um, grown in the last 15 years. And we can see that in the data of the growing inequality and, and growing, growing divides. And so, you know, how do we solve that? Uh, you know, there's no, no silver bullet that's going to solve it in a minute. But it is very much about getting different jurisdictions, different neighborhoods, different communities, and, you know, different policy areas talking together to better understand the intersections of all of these issues that we've been talking about. You mentioned your book and where people could go to get that. Is there any other places you'd like to share with people where they can go and learn more about your work? Well, I would mention the other website, which is justgrowth.org, points to a, an earlier book that Manuel and I did that also has other case studies. I, I mean, what I have really appreciated about the opportunity to go and travel around the country and talk to people in these different regions is you get the stories of what makes successful regions successful and those that have been struggling, how they struggle. And so, you know, both the, the new website, growingtogethermetro.org, and the older one, justgrowth.org, have many of those stories there. And there's links to other resources, and you know, there's lots of people working on these issues. So those are good places to go. So Chris, I could talk to you all day, but you have to go. So we're going to just turn to a couple of questions that we ask every person we're interviewing. We call them the lightning round questions. They're designed to be kind of quick, short answers. So if you could implement one change or pick one leverage point that would lead to smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities, what would it be? The idea of a basic universal income guarantee. It's an idea that's been around for a long time. It actually was implemented in some form as a policy in the negative income tax proposal that came out of the Nixon administration. But I think what we're seeing now is we have an economy that's fundamentally rooted in the driving sectors in knowledge and information. And a large part of that is public sector investment in education and technology. But the returns to that economy are captured by a small set of companies and a small sector of the workforce, which I think does not recognize the importance of the social connections and knowledge that's important to that. There's a whole discussion. We could go into that on another podcast if you'd like. Universal basic income guarantee in some form would dramatically address the social inequality we have in terms of economic opportunity. And then that should become a better basis for dealing with some of the you know, neighborhood and, and housing and transportation issues that we've talked about as well. So, Chris, what one action could our listeners take to help build a more equitable and sustainable future? Well, on an individual level, what I would say is to reach out to someone who comes from a completely different ideological background than you and have a sustained conversation. And I mean sustained over multiple different meetings to try and get beyond the ideology and to understand the reality of these social issues in our community. Those that are in positions of, of leadership in community organizations or policies, you know, I would extend that to say, how do you reach out to someone whose area of work seems to be completely outside of your norm and figuring out how do we find those intersections? Because building that diversity of knowledge sharing and information and social networks, I think, is critical for dealing with the scale of the challenges we're talking about. 
Chris, if you're successful in the work that you are doing, what does the world look like 30 years from now? <laughs> well, maybe a few more gray hairs than I have at the moment <laughs> for me personally. <laughs> you know, I think what it looks like, we have a completely different leadership in Washington, D.C. that are made up of the whole range of our population in this country. Transgender, Muslim, you know, women, people of color, immigrants who are key leaders in our country and that they have gotten there through being rooted in this kind of diverse epistemic knowledge communities being developed at a local level. So they have an appreciation for how this works in a neighborhood and a region and have been able to build from that to transform leadership at a national scale. Well, Chris, thank you so very much for giving us your time. We can certainly see why you and Manuel are such great partners and collaborators and We look forward to engaging with you further and encourage our listeners to go to those resources that Chris mentioned to learn more about his work. Great. Thank you so much. I really appreciated talking with you. And we want to thank you all for listening. And we look forward to seeing you all again on the next episode of Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, the Local Government Commission, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash infinite earth radio and Twitter by following at infinite earth radio.